Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 50 with Rich Rosendale. Uh, now, when you look at like with the whole COVID situation, um, even if we solve this problem right away, what it reveals is how volatile these traditional models are. So if you're not looking at new, maybe less labor intensive or maybe more unorthodox models, if you're not looking at those and considering those, there's a danger that you can become obsolete. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Wow, 50 episodes. Thanks so much. You know, when I started this with Andrew last November, I had no idea where the show was going to go, how many episodes we do, or what the future held. And things have obviously been a little weird the past couple months with COVID, but I'm quite happy with being able to convert the podcast to doing it via Zoom. You know, I've been able to connect with some people that I probably wouldn't have been able to connect with otherwise. So as much as I want to get the show back in the in-person format, I think that this has been really great. So this week, I have Chef Rich Rosendale, and Rich is a certified master chef, and he has a whole bunch of different businesses, including the Rosendale Collective, their culinary lab, his events division. He's also doing an online learning platform, and he has a restaurant in Leesburg called Roots 657. This is a huge honor. Rich is an amazing chef. He represented the United States at the Bocuse d'Or cooking competition, and I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to sit down with him. I actually got to go check out the Culinary Lab a couple of weeks ago, and that was really cool. So I hope you enjoy this episode. We talk about a lot of different things. A lot of it is focusing on adaptability, flexibility, how you can kind of pivot. You know, right now we're all using the word pivot with COVID and everything, but I do think it's applicable. So I hope you enjoy the show, and please give me any feedback you've got. Thanks to this week's sponsors, Tyler Wright. Danny Spletter, Ron Krieger, Cafe Bueno, Little Fig Bake Shop, Maryland Bakes, and the Savory Spoon Catering Company. If you want to support the show, our Venmo name is C-H-E-F-W-O-R-E-S-T-O-S. If you enjoy the show, have ever received a job through one of our referrals, have been a guest, been given complimentary Chefs Without Restaurants swag, or simply want to help, it would be much appreciated. Feel free to let us know if you have any questions. Thanks so much, and have a great weekend. Welcome, everyone. This is Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. So today is going to be episode 50, and I'm very excited for today's guest. I have Master Chef Rich Rosendale. So some of Rich's projects include the Rosendale Collective, the Rosendale Culinary Lab, his events division, his online learning, and he also has the restaurant Roots 657. So Rich is a certified master chef, and he represented the United States at the Bocusta Or cooking competition, and he was also fe- featured in the film The Contender, which documented that process. So welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I appreciate that uh, thorough introduction. You even got you even pronounced Bocusta Or properly, which a lot of people stumble over. 
but uh, you're well aware of that competition. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. This is really exciting. I was very excited when you moved back to the area. Um, I don't know where it makes sense to start your uh, path of kind of where you are, but you're now, uh, you live in Leesburg, Virginia. Is that correct? That's right. That's actually where I'm at today. Yeah. So I remember, I guess, connecting with you probably eight years or so through the uh, American Culinary Federation when you showed up at one of our meetings. I was kind of shocked, like, oh my God, Chef Rich, Ros- Rich Rosendale's here, which was really exciting. And at the time, I had no idea you were local to the area. That's right. Um, I mean, I, I've, uh, I've done a lot in my career. Everybody, whenever they meet me, they um, in one way, shape, or form have probably cross paths or have seen something that I've been involved with. A lot of that goes back to the earlier uh, cooking competition days. Uh, and of course, uh, whenever I was executive chef and director of food and beverage at the Greenbrier, that place was like a revolving door for culinarians. So there were a lot of people there in, in some way, worked there or knew somebody that worked there. So as you know, our industry, though it's a big industry, there's a tremendous amount of networking. A lot of people know someone that they've, they've worked with uh, in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And the internet keeps making the world a much smaller place. You know, it seems like you're one degree of separation from almost everyone in any kind of industry. Oh, absolutely. That's for sure. It's never been more than uh, it is now. I mean, it's like you can really pick up your, your uh, mobile device and have a conversation with somebody on the other side of the world. It's, it's crazy. So you have a lot of things that you're working on. Um, if you'd like to give our guests a little overview, what is, what are all the things you're working on? What is Rosendale Collective? What is the Culinary Lab? Um, and what's your online learning uh, platform? Well, so when I, when I left the Greenbrier, um, I knew that I wanted to do something that was going to be able to uh, feed my desire to create. Uh, though I... I'm a maintainer. I'm also somebody that likes to create things. And I, I, I've always had a big entrepreneurial uh, spirit about me. I mean, I, I think that's what attracted me to go back to the Greenbrier because I, I actually used to run their fine dining restaurant, uh, the Tavern Room, for like five years. And whenever they invited me back, I probably would not have gone back if they weren't getting ready to open up all these new restaurants. And that kind of piqued my interest. Uh, and also at that time, I was running a fine dining restaurant in Columbus, Ohio, that was my first restaurant venture. Uh, that was several years ago. But we were in the midst of a terrible recession, as, as you recall, uh, whenever the economy uh, crashed in the, in the 2000s. And really, like overnight, uh, you saw people uh, kind of change the way they were spending and I felt like fine dining at that time was really right in the crosshairs of consumer spending. That was an easy thing for people to cut out of their budget. So uh, I left and I went back to the Greenbrier and I was there for several years. I took my certified master chef exam, opened up all the restaurants while I was there. I think we opened up five new concepts, launched a uh, 44 acre produce farm, uh, the Greenbrier farm. Uh, we kind of got the apprenticeship program uh, back up and running. I did the Boku store while I was there. And um, after that, I, I still felt like there was kind of this void, you know, something else. There were still things that I wanted to accomplish. Uh, and I also wanted to be, I wanted to live a little bit, I mean, though Green, the Greenbrier and West Virginia, the people in the area 
it was, was wonderful as a wonderful point in my career, something I point to that was that I got a lot out of and enjoyed. Uh, I also wanted to kind of get back into uh, a little more um, convenience and, you know, here in Leesburg, Loudoun County, you know, we're right, right on the cusp of the uh, nation's capital. It's very, it's very transient. Um, so I, I enjoy those things because I, 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 up until this year, traveled a lot and it made traveling very easy. I, I live uh, just minutes away from Dulles Airport. But anyway, I, I left there, uh, left the Greenbrier and I came here and I launched the company as Rosendale Collective. And I really wanted it to be something that could be a diverse company that we could have various divisions. And I, I look at a pandemic situation right now, and that diversity has kind of helped us kind of navigate through this, this uh, terrible storm that we're all going through. Um, you know, there are areas of our business that have suffered greatly, but there's also areas that have been more resilient because they're, they're based on different models. Um, but, you know, we're not like we're the same as everybody else as that. This is taking a big toll on us. Um, like so many of my fellow peers, restaurateurs, people that work in the hotel business, it, it's been very difficult. And how's the Roots restaurant going? I mean, have you guys stayed open almost through the whole pandemic since it started? Yes, uh, that, that's a good question. Uh, Route 657, uh, though my background is more fine dining, it is definitely the uh, kind of casual side, a casual aspect of, of, uh, of my cooking. And it has remained open during the pandemic. Uh, we've been fortunate enough that I, I really kind of point to the community uh, they've been great in supporting and, and coming in. And obviously, you know, we would have days on a Sunday afternoon pre pandemic that we could do over a thousand people that we could feed. Well, uh, we're not doing those numbers, um, right now. I mean, and the model has changed. We, though we are now able to have people in the restaurant, we have opted to only, uh, offer carry out and outdoor dining uh, until we get to that tipping point where we feel comfortable enough um, to do so. But it stayed open. And, uh, you know, it frankly, Chris, it would have been easier to just close. But I, I think when you get to a different, uh, a certain part in your career, you really kind of begin to audit the impact of your decisions in a very different way. And Roots is really uh, for the community. Uh, so as much as it is a something that we wanted to try to keep open uh, to, to give people a place to have some sense of comfort and, and good food, uh, it's also been able to keep a, a handful of our team working through uh, this turbulent time. And I got to come out to the culinary lab a week or so ago, and that's a really awesome place. What are some of the projects you're working on over there? Yes. Uh, yeah, and it was great to have you there. And uh, we did our uh, COVID um, tour with the face mask and, and you know, uh, walk you through all of the, the, the gadgets and toys that we have there. I, when I was a little kid, I used to watch uh, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And I almost was thinking, I was like, wow, you know, uh, an, an, another show would be uh, the Orange County Choppers, where these guys would just go in there and they had this big... Um, room, this garage of just all these really cool uh, pieces of equipment. Well, we got this warehouse and it was really a blank canvas, uh, put a lot into it, a lot of money into it, a lot of equipment, a lot of brands that have helped us. But it, we really have a lot of the most state-of-the-art uh, cooking equipment that is in there. And 
though day to day, uh, it sustains a lot of production for uh, Roots Restaurant. Some of our other clients are wineries in the area. Um, we have a 200 gallon order of um, uh, some sauces going out uh, this afternoon whenever I was leaving. So we do a lot of uh, sous vide, a lot of uh, reduced oxygen, ROP packaging. And we, we do a lot of that production for businesses primarily in this area. Now, we had to pivot a little bit. I know that word's been kind of overused in the last couple of months, but um, it's true. I mean, we were using that mostly for our cooking classes, but we really haven't been able to have any classes in the last couple of months. So we're not using it for classes anymore. Uh, we use it primarily for production. We have several uh, consulting projects that, that we run out of there. We work. We have a consulting division. Uh, so on any given day, you could go in there and we could be doing um, a test on fryer oil for um, a 600 chain restaurant, or we could do, be doing menu development for a premium hotel brand. So we do a lot of that, and that, that diversification has helped us uh, kind of navigate through this when some of the other areas of our business have suffered. And you also, uh, you were talking about uh, coming down there and, and, and seeing the place. Well, uh, even the layout has kind of changed because um, pre-pandemic, we had everything kind of set up more in stations that had iPad terminals on each station. So whenever a class would come in there, each one of them would get an iPad and they would get their set of recipes and they would start cooking. Um, we've reconformed all that. We've changed all that stuff out because we're not really doing the classes. However, most of uh, those customers, most of our community of people that have come to our classes for years are now members of Rosendale Online. And that is our online uh, recipe and resource uh, website. It, it, it's, it's really, I don't want to say that it's just a recipe website because we put all kinds of stuff up there that are great resources and uh, tools. And that community is made up of people that have taken our classes, but they're, they're also people I've met from around the world that just like what we do and, uh, and they support us. I mean, we, I, I wouldn't be able to do what I do if I didn't have people out there, great people that uh, believe in what we're doing and, and generally try to support. So I'm, I'm, as much as I can tell you, like, you know, I, I didn't go into this and, and know exactly the way things were going to look. Uh, I've been lucky in some ways. I put a lot of hard work into what I do, but I've also been fortunate that there's been a lot of people around us, whether it's communities uh, or even people within the industry uh, that have supported us. And I, and I appreciate that. And that's really what's kind of fueled a lot of the growth with the things that we've done over the years. So do you think people are going to get more accustomed to online learning due to the pandemic? You know, we're all doing Zoom meetings and doing a lot more online learning. I mean, my kids are going to school on the internet right now. So is it worth spending more time now kind of investing in those platforms and thinking long term? I mean, I love the Masterclass um, website. I'm sure you're familiar with. And, you know, you can take these classes with Thomas Keller, you know, and Massimo Batura. And I think they're great. So do you kind of see that continuing? I mean, you're never going to be able to replace an in-person hands-on cooking thing. But, you know, I do think there's some future in this. Yeah. And I, I tell everybody too, that as, as terrible as these circumstances have been in 2020, I also think that it presents a tremendous opportunity for those that are able to see through their mind's eye 
maybe a different model, a different play on how they define and run a business uh, or how they learn or how they access uh, a service. And it's very easy to just get caught up as, as you know, I mean, all of us would just you flipping through your phone on a daily basis and it could be consuming uh, the negative uh, energy that's out there. And I think a lot of people, it's easy to get caught up in that doom and gloom, but also uh, during these turbulent times, some of the greatest uh, ideas out of necessity can be born. I mean, you, whoever thought that, you know, years ago that we'd be doing a interviews podcast like this from, from both locations and you can do this with anybody in the world. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable and people are listening. It's so it's, it's interesting to, to have a, uh, a glimpse into the way that people think about problems and the way that they think about business and education. So I think we will become more and more accustomed to uh, accessing not just education, but a whole myriad of different services. So if you're a restaurant or a bed and breakfast, or you just have a brand, uh, whatever that may be, there, there's, there are a lot of ways to reach your audience, to reach your customer. You just have to maybe go through some non-traditional um, channels to, to reach them. And now as people are starting to do some more distancing and restaurants aren't able to open up, what are your thoughts on ghost kitchens and the rise of these kitchens that you don't come in and, and dine in? If our listeners aren't familiar, you know, it's most often associated with a place that's just kind of a big commercial kitchen where food's produced and then quite often delivered to your door via um, third-party delivery system. So what are you thinking about that? Um, that's a great question. I think that's uh, super relevant uh, right now. Um, you know, we've, we were actually looking at uh, two different restaurant locations prior to this uh, pandemic. And um, I, I definitely now, as I kind of look back, um, it, it could have been a very uh, even more risky. I mean, restaurants are already risky uh, endeavors to, to take on. But uh, now when you look at like with the whole COVID situation, um, even if we solve this problem right away, what it reveals is how volatile these traditional models are. So if you're not looking at new, maybe less labor intensive or maybe more unorthodox models, if you're not looking at those and considering those, there's a danger that you can become obsolete as your competitors out there. I mean, somebody that has no restaurant experience could go into a warehouse and come up with like a French fry and chicken tender concept and blow you out of the water. So I think that chefs need to wake up to uh, what is happening, that evolution. And I mean, take it from, you know, I mean, from me, I mean, I've worked from with a lot of chefs over the years, you know, we all have egos, we, we all do. But I think that uh, you've got to think about it in, in, in the mindset of the consumer, where they may not be thinking about the food in the way that uh, a chef that's competing in the Boku store does. They want something that's delicious, that's craveable, that's consistent, that maybe checks the box of price point and convenience. Um, and as far as the ghost kitchens go, uh, we have two concepts that we've been working on. I mean, I'm, I'm always looking at the next couple of years and always trying to stay one step ahead. I mean, we didn't like just decide to launch our online recipe subscription in the midst of this pandemic. We actually launched it last year. 
And we now we've accelerated the marketing of it uh, in the midst of this. But we're always looking at evolving the different things that we do. One of the ways that Roots was able to stay in business is because we already had since day one an online ordering system. Um, I don't, you know, I, I may have not planned on doing a ghost kitchen if you would have asked me last year, but we have two concepts that are ready to launch. One is Rich's Backyard. It's a celebration of the American picnic. Uh, it's a seasonal concept that would only run from spring uh, through summer. And then we have Souped Up, which is a soup concept that would run in the fall and in the winter. And it is a celebration of extraordinary globally influenced soups, fresh baked breads, and salads. And I, I, the, you look at a concept like that and you say, well, how does that work? Um, imagine being able to enter into the marketplace of a restaurant and, uh, and, and, some, and a customer just goes online, uh, the portal they're using or any of these apps like Grubhub or Postmates, uh, DoorDash, there's, there's a myriad of different ones, Uber Eats. And you can literally access all these brands just from scrolling through and making your selection. And there may not, there, there may not be a, a brick and mortar. They may not literally have a, uh, a restaurant that you can walk into, but it may be coming from um, uh, maybe a hotel kitchen that's not being used or a, a warehouse like what we have. Um, and we actually, that's one of the things that we are going to document and put on the Rosendale Online, which is kind of uh, documenting the launch and preparation of a ghost kitchen concept and share that, share that with our members so that they can see the trials and tribulations of, of, of what that looks like to launch something like that. And also to get some tips and ideas and say, wow, that's how they did that. Look, they have a station set up uh, for charging your phones for Uber drivers, or wow, look at how they have um, access on the website on how you can place your order. So I do think those are going to be relevant, and I think that 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 is also an opportunity. But it's also potentially uh, can be a threat to uh, traditional restaurants. It, it, it can if you if you just stand back and rest on your laurels and say I don't have to change. We've been doing this for 20 years. It's worked. But the reality is that the whole dynamic of the industry has changed. And the change will accelerate in the next couple of years only because uh, businesses have to. They have, they have no choice but to uh, evolve and evolve rapidly or uh, the, the risk of going out of business. Yeah, I think one of the things that's protecting a lot of restaurants right now uh, is kind of like the the bureaucrats, the Department of Health, the regulations, and you know, restaurants don't want all of us to come up as competitors. Myself as a personal chef, I know a lot of people are annoyed because I can run a super low overhead. I mean, it made sense to me. I love what I'm doing. I don't have a brick and mortar. I don't have employees, so I can run lean and mean. And a lot of restaurants don't like that. It's the same with the food trucks. I mean, Frederick, Maryland, where I live, they didn't even legally allow them until. I think five years ago, because the restaurants were pushing against that because it was competition. And even to this day, you're still only allowed to be uh, serving food at places like breweries and wineries, but you can't go into private property. You can't go into commercial zones. And right now there's a group of people trying to get a, in front of the aldermen to say, no, we shouldn't be relegated just to breweries and places where there's alcohol. We want to be able to set up our truck in a Home Depot parking lot. 
but you know, there's a lot of people pushing back against that kind of thing. And I've already seen some, some people pushing back against the ideas of ghost kitchens because they cost less to operate and it's not in the best interest of restaurants to have them open up. So I think it'll be interesting the same way hotels are pushing against Airbnb and the cab companies are pushing against Uber, but I don't think you can stop progress. Right. And those are all great examples of, of, uh, I guess you would kind of say those are disruptors and, um, really I would say the restaurant industry needs to really kind of disrupt itself. And I was, I have been saying that for the last couple of years and here we are now, lo and behold, where, uh, a, a crisis like a pandemic has thrusted that change, uh, onto us. And now rather than being proactive, we're, we're being reactive. And I, I believe, you know, as far as like, even just with what, what you're doing with your private chef concept, uh, that is to me, I look at those kinds of models and see that there are going to be more and more people that are going to really kind of reconsider the definition of work and their career and and trying to figure out a way to check all the boxes that matter to them that you can do what you want when you want and fulfill the lifestyle that you want and sometimes if you can't find that out in the marketplace uh, there's the opportunity now now more than ever to create it for yourself I've also always been, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big uh, Motley Fool listener. Uh, that these guys, Those guys are based in um, Alexandria, Virginia. They're uh, stock advisors. And um, I have a, a financial advisor, but I've always kept a little bit of money more for me to kind of, I don't want to say play with, but to be able to anticipate like what I see when I'm out traveling, things that I see that are coming down the pipeline of, of things that I think that are going to be uh, relevant in the future. Um, Shopify is one of them. I mean, I bought Shopify the minute they went public. They are a online um, e-commerce software that allows somebody like me or you or anybody to say, hey, I want to be able to sell a product, a good on the internet. And I don't have $20,000 to go build some fancy website. I just want to have a monthly payment and I want to start selling shirts or whatever. Um, you can do that now. And, and by the way, their stock now is over $900 a share. Um, another one is uh, Upwork. And these are up, I've worked with people from Upwork over the years. Uh, and this is basically a freelance um, website. These are people that say, you know what? I want to be able to do um, uh, graphic design or I want to be able to do social media management or what have you. But it's a way for a business or an individual to have a relation, working relationship with a freelance uh, person that can bring a service to you. And, you know, so my point is, I think it was the movie, uh, No Country for Old Men. And one of the quotes was like, you can't stop what's coming. And it, the reality, and I'm classically trained as a chef, but the reality is that you can't stop what's coming. It's going to change. So you can either embrace that and figure out how to leverage all of these changes that are happening in society and technology and benefit and, and, and benefit from that and bring value to your customer. And by the way, 
a lot of the things that we think about is not about like, hey, how do I make more money? It's, it's really not. I mean, I've never been motivated by that. It's how do we bring value to the people that we work with? Those are our customers. Those are uh, team members. Those are brands we work with, people that we, we interact with. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a model that can sustain that, then you, you can't do any of the things that you want to do. Um, I think if you're just motivated by uh, the financial um, rewards of everything, that doesn't really um, keep enough fuel in the tank for me. I, I almost would say that the process over the years of getting to all of these things that I've, I've wanted to do, that's what I've enjoyed the most. And it's probably better. I think I probably enjoyed getting ready for the Boku store than I, than I actually did even competing in it. Um, but, you know, I think the process is what also helps us uh, get better. We learn, we learn from that. Jumping on that, do you miss the fine dining kind of cooking at all? I mean, I'm sure some part of you must miss some of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I feel like now uh, we're kind of like an accordion and we can, we can consolidate down to, um, to be a, a, a business that still is functional and we can do the things that we need to do. And then if we need to expand and somebody says, hey, you know, Rich, we want to do this extraordinary wine dinner for 50 people and uh, it's going to be at this exclusive club and we're going to fly your team down to do this. We can do that too, but I I would not say that on a day to day basis. I think that I've I've found other ways to kind of fulfill the creative part of me because I think the creative part was um, that was fulfilled with fine dining. Um, but no, I, I don't I don't miss it. I mean, I, I can still do that. I, I get as much excitement um, out of smoking a brisket in my backyard. We're making some soup um, for my family. Yeah, I, I guess it was just kind of a different chapter in my life. But, uh, but I can, you know, I think the cooking classes uh, have also helped be an outlet for that maybe higher end uh, creativity. And I will say this, as much as um, the one thing with fine dining, as much as I trained so hard for so many years to be able to cook at that level, the one thing that I was missing is a lot of people, really, most of the people I knew would never get to experience that. They would never get to experience that food that I, that I cooked. And I think that was one reason that I wanted to say, hey, like, how, how do I make what I do more accessible to more people? And I also feel like even um, sharing those techniques with people in our cooking classes, I've really enjoyed that. I've almost enjoyed doing that more than actually doing it in a, in a real setting. But um, yeah, I, I, so I still have ways to have touch points for the, that, that, those, that skill set. It's just that I'm not doing that on a daily basis. You know, we have a lot of younger listeners, a lot of people in our community who are somewhat new to the culinary industry. And some of the things we've talked about recently are, you know, should you go to culinary school? Um, I went to culinary school. I have a bachelor's in culinary from Johnson Wales. I was in the American Culinary Federation certified, not as a master chef, but what are the futures of those organizations? Because do they represent contemporary food these days? Like what role does the American Culinary Federation have? What role do Eurocentric techniques that we're still learning in culinary school and 
competitions. And it seems like some of these organizations and schools aren't evolving fast enough with the time. And I think they're going to start to lose people. What are your thoughts on that of, of where we should go or where those organizations maybe should go? Well, I, I actually think that you, you nailed it uh, by saying that they uh, are going to be forced to evolve because they like some of the other examples that are out there in society and in the marketplace that to just point to that and say that this has been this way for this long, therefore it will never change um, is, is wrong. And, and, you know, I think that is, is school uh, going to culinary school and, and going in and, you know, following the path that your mentor followed is that like the only way to be successful? No, uh, you don't. You don't have to go to culinary school. Um, it really depends on uh, what you see um, the the end in mind. Like what what is it? I almost tell people it's like look, try to figure out uh, what are some of the things you want to accomplish and try to back back step uh, and take the d- most direct path to get there. Um, one of the hardest things I think for people isn't necessarily even trying to accomplish a goal. It's really trying to, we spend a lot of time trying to define what the goals are. Uh, And if you ask a lot of people, like, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? A lot of people really aren't really sure what success looks like. But I think that um, success in general, a lot of times that I found over the years, I try and I do a lot of things. And sometimes every once in a while, success can just run out from under you. And you've never even intended it. But I think the reluctancy to be too conservative about trying new things because the fear of making a mistake, uh, that can actually stifle uh, growth. And it can hold you in a place. And it's like, you know, everybody looks at me and they think I'm so calculated with I do this, so that happens and do this. It's like, really, I I don't. I mean, I I try a lot of things and I'm okay with making a mistake. You know, I mean, there are people that are better than me at different things in the culinary industry and that's okay. And, you know, I think that um, I would never dismiss culinary school or I would never dismiss uh, an, an organization or an affiliation. But what I would do is point out that there are a myriad of shortcomings with a lot of the organizations that are out there that uh, you know say, hey, we represent this group. Well, if you're going to represent that group, then you're gonna have to do your due diligence to really represent them in a way that is uh, relevant and is something that a young person is going to aspire to and say, hey, they get it, they understand. Um, and that means that the narrative and the messages that we put out there uh, you really need to think about what what those uh, what those are and what how are you gonna like I, I never look at a lot of people I talk to and everybody gets so pissed off about like uh, Facebook and all these different social media platforms like all oh, people are just wasting time you know people were wasting time well before devices ever came along you know flipping through TV channels and sitting on the couch all day you know we've just found something different to occupy our time. But the, the difference is, is are you going to do something to change those conditions and, and do something? But there's all kinds of ways to waste time. But yeah, I do think that culinary schools 
and uh, organizations are are going to have to evolve. They're going to have to really be honest and reflect on the subject matter and the content and say, is this relevant? I mean, restaurants aren't even tooled right now for the change that is happening. So how do you prepare a culinarian for an industry that is going through a, a huge shift right now. Um, I had a, a, somebody came in today to work with us uh, and he's going to, he's an intern and actually a local, one of our neighbors reached out and said, Hey Rich, you know, um, so-and-so I won't say his name, but uh, he's still in school. He wants to be a chef. He's really interested and he wants, he's looking for somebody to um, spend some time and kind of mentor him. And I said, you know what, let's start him off this week and come in from 10 till two and just kind of shadow and, and, uh, I'll have him, I'll put him with some of our chefs and stuff. But the first thing I did is really kind of showed him the whole world of like what we do, what I do and how I do it. And that's very different than any conversation I ever had when I started off in this career. Mine was more like, look, you can go down this path or this path. So I think getting with people that, inspire you that can put you on the right path and then you navigate as you go down that path what's most suitable for what you want to what you want to do yeah i guess one of the challenges is the people making the decisions especially in larger companies still are holding on to those older models i mean i worked for a large contract food company and i know the mandate from up top is if you're going to be an executive chef working for a Sodexo, Aramark, Compass, that you have a culinary degree and that you won't even get through the screening process of HR. You know, when I left my company, I helped look for my replacement and we only got the candidates that a corporate HR company pre-screened for us. So if you were an amazing chef and had cooked for 15 years, but didn't have a degree, when you submitted that resume, HR would just dump it out and it wouldn't even come to me. So we still have these gatekeepers and positions who are kind of making the decisions as who gets even an interview. And I think it's going to still take a little while to change some of that. Right. Well, we are going through the process right now of interviewing for an executive chef at the Residence Club uh, in Ocean Reef, uh, just south of uh, Miami, Florida. And um, I did not put on there a prerequisite that you had to have all these different um, degrees and all of these different affiliations. Um, That's part of it, but that's not just it. It really depends on um, the person and their, and their experience matters a lot to me. I mean, it really does. I mean, uh, you doing what you do and being able to make that work speaks volumes of the, uh, work ethic and the reliability, the account, the personal accountability to be able to do that. Um, not everybody has that. So there's great value there. And I think that until society recognizes what are uh, really the things that we want to um, hire on that just because you've checked these boxes, well, it said that's what, I mean, just like with me with taking the CMC exam, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't, a lot of times I introduce myself and I don't tell anybody that I'm a certified master chef. Uh, I took it, I passed it. Uh, it certainly outlines a, a level of, of experience that, that most never uh, do, but you know, the proof is in the pudding, you know, you still get in and you may not be able to execute a business. You may fail as the executive chef. So, 
I think that um, you can't just rely, put so much equity into just some of these more traditional indicators because they're not always reliable. And I'm a big fan of workshops and such, you know, like you, you do all these different classes. And I say to people, figure out what you want to do first. I think your money's better spent. If you know you're going to start a barbecue food truck, then you don't need to go to culinary school. Maybe go take one of Rich's, you know, barbecue workshops. I'm a big fan of star chefs. I've been to the ICC, I think every year for the past 10 years. Uh, You were there. I remember you one year doing a sous vide workshop. I think it's money well spent to go take a workshop with someone like you to do that and just kind of focus in instead of this very broad thing. Once you have an idea of what you want to do, there's a lot of great uh, workshops and classes, both in person and online. And I'm a huge fan of that. I mean, I think you should be learning something every day. I try to learn something every day. And I think there's some great places you can get information these days. Yeah, I mean, I think that if people uh, think of their career um, as a as almost like an entity, like a like a company, and understand that in that company, in the in the very early stages, if you take on a tremendous burden of debt, and you don't really have a good plan on how to get the return on that, or you mis miscalibrated uh, and Maybe you're going to make mistakes, but how, how costly are those mistakes? I mean, to make a mistake and say, you know what, I, I wasted a year doing that. I'm okay with that. But to make a mistake and that it cost you $150,000, you need to be more careful about those decisions, in, in my opinion, because they, have, uh, they, have, they carry a, a burden of... Um, you know, it, it can, it can bog you down in, in your career. I mean, uh, my mom, um, who raised my sister and I took me to various culinary schools in the area. And frankly, some of the culinary schools, it was an easy decision for me because, uh, it was just out of our budget. I really just didn't have that, the option to go to a school that was really out of state. And some of the, some of the bigger name ones it just wasn't an option for me. So, I went to Westmoreland County Community College. I did a three-year apprenticeship. I think my entire education was like a total of like under $7,000. And um, I had zero debt. I went out into the industry. I went down to the Greenbrier and I did another three-year apprenticeship. And I also would say that I'd say the one thing that might be, and this might just be me because this is my generation, but I know when I talk to other younger people and it's okay, it's okay that there's different perspectives but for me, being patient and going slow was actually fast. And a lot of people want to go fast, but I think that in the long run, a lot of times that's actually slow. So I th- always thought of it as like, I'm going to build my career like a pyramid and I'm going to start with a broad, uh, strong foundation. And I'm not going to think of it as a skyscraper where I'm going to go to the 10th floor, or the 100th floor within a year. Because I think the longevity of that strategy doesn't always give you the stability that one would think. Um, but I know that in this day and age, uh, that paradigm or that theory maybe is being challenged because there are ways where when I was a culinarian getting started, there's tools now that can really accelerate your growth. And you may not have the uh, the tools, the the skills that maybe I spent time developing, but you can still realize success 
overnight. I mean, a, a viral video for good or bad can uh, put you on the map. I mean, it can, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, disruptors with, uh, with everything in, in our life, including the principles that we've always used to, to make decisions. Yeah. I mean, I'm the flip side of you. You know, I went to culinary school and I came out, uh, I had to pay $404 a month for 10 years, which is crippling. Right. And that was like even more money. Cause that was 20 years ago. So yeah. I had to start higher up. I mean, I probably to get a, a better foundation in the industry should have taken a lower job and really refined my skills. But when you come out, you need that money. So instead of wanting to be a line cook, I want to come into a sous chef as quick as possible, an executive chef as quick as possible. And I was running kitchens way before I was ready for it. And I didn't have enough mentors showing me the ways because you come out, it's like, man, I can barely get by this month. There's no way I can take a job for $8 an hour because I had that kind of crippling debt. So, right. you know, and, and look at you. I mean, I would have thought that you went to one of the big name culinary schools. So it just shows if you have the drive and, and determination, you know, it almost doesn't really matter as long as I think it's, it's in you or it's not, right? Right. Well, um, and I also don't want to take uh, all the credit for um, that I've made all these good decisions. I, I made a lot of decisions and I tried a lot of things, but the reality is I've always been surrounded with a lot of really uh, great people. And I also don't point to only chefs as being those great people. I think that to find uh, mentors, um, and, and they don't even have to be a mentor. I mean, I, I think sometimes people need to be more humble about um, just because somebody is a mentor doesn't mean that they are um, any more accomplished or anything. It's just somebody that has uh, valuable insight that you can learn from. And sometimes there are mistakes that they've made. So I would definitely never shortchange feedback from people. In fact, as nice as it is to hear good comp compliments from people, I really seek out uh, the, the feedback that it's like, well, where are the opportunities on like, what can I do better? Um, we I did an evaluation the other day. We started doing evaluations and I spent a good deal of the conversation after giving my thought on uh, how someone is doing. I was like, well, how are we doing? What are, what's important to you? Like, what are the things that would make uh, an impact on your, how you feel about the future of, of this place and, and being with us? Like, is there, are there ways that we can have synergy between the business goals and your goals? Can we check both boxes and align uh, your success with our growth? And I found that by spending a lot of time doing that, that we've created more longevity and less turnover with people. But that only matters if people see that you are sincere about it. Um, if you're not, then people have that detector and they know if something's genuine or not and they will be able to tell. Yeah. You know, working for a big company, we always had job descriptions and I found that they had to be more fluid and not everyone always agreed with me, but it would be like, you know, this guy you'd hire as a line cook. And then he was amazing at organization. And then you add 
receiver and his duties. And people would say, but he wasn't a receiver and you're paying him to be a line cook. It's like, but he's actually the best at organizing the way he works. Like, why do we have to be so rigid into that? I think get some people in the door, see what they're good at, and then just be a little more flexible in their job descriptions instead of locking them in and saying, well, you're paying this guy $12 an hour. He shouldn't be a receiver. Well, that's an important job. So can he do both? And just, I, that's how I like to run my kitchens is getting people in and seeing what they're good at and let them play to their strengths. Um, and, and I also think that there's other extracurricular things that you can get involved in and that, that also can, can help you uh, accelerate your, your career. Uh, for me, the vehicle was cooking competitions. And I've traveled a lot over the years and competing. I was team captain uh, on the 208 team. And I was on the team in 204. And even just traveling and meeting and spending time with other people, I mean, I learned a great deal. And I also uh, have noticed over the years, whenever I was doing culinary competition uh, internationally, it was like, wow, these, the Nordic teams are so good. Like, wh- what is it about them? Like, why are they so creative and so good? And a lot of it had to do, uh, and this is from my opinion, of visiting France and vi- visiting Italy and uh, Norway and, and, and traveling through Europe and spending time with these chefs is that. Uh, if you were growing up and you were told that, like, look, this is the way that you make puff pastry. This is the only way that you make puff pastry. But if you were growing, if you were going through the kitchen and it was a more uh, open approach that you didn't have that structure, or at least not as strict with that structure, your mind goes to different places with creativity. So as much as that training is there's so much value there. There's also a lot of value in also being uh, not held in place like a sandbox where it's like you have to do it this way. So do you find the Nordic countries didn't have that rigidity in training and coming up through kitchens? They definitely had uh, outstanding training and there was definitely a lot of um, classical um, uh, background but it was not to the same degree, uh, in, certainly in the thinking of what maybe a traditional um, kitchen, a class like classical French culinary brigade. Like whenever I was at the Greenbrier, it was strict. Like if it was like, "Hey, make a bechamel," that there's this is how you're making a bechamel. Um, so I feel like there is some of that structure. But there was also uh, more of a different approach where that wasn't the only way that you could do it. And I think that what that does is that sends you down a different road in in your mind from the standpoint of creativity. Um, I, I, you know, it's also like asking me to problem solve or to think about a problem when you are going through training for the Boku's door and you're in every month, you're in a meeting and you've got Grant Ackett's there and uh, Thomas Keller and Gabriel Cruther and, and, and Gavin Case and all these uh, really talented chefs. And Grant mentioned something about, well, what if it disappeared or what if it flowed? I mean, you begin to think about things uh, in, in a very different level. So for me now, I'm sometimes my uh, team team members. If we're having a meeting and we're trying to solve a problem about fatty brisket or whatever, I may come out of left field with a an idea that it sounds like a 
like, whoa, that's out of left field. And sometimes those ideas work. So I think that culinary competition, spending time with creativity, with creative people, and also not being so restricted. I mean, you you want good uh, structure in your training, but I don't let that limit me. I mean, I think a lot of people, when they come and spend time working with me, that one thing that strikes them is that I have such a strong classical training, but I also am thinking and doing things very, very unorthodox. You know, I mean, the way that we smoke meats, the way we do things, there might be a, a pit master or another master chef that might say, what? Um, but that's just my, that's been my experience. And that's what has shaped who I am today. You know, I mean, I, even my career path, I've mean, kind of gone down a very different road and kind of just created that as, as I go. And I, and I think that that's okay. I mean, I think that's the main message to young people is that you don't have to follow uh, someone else's path. You can create completely create a new one. And it doesn't have to look like anybody else's path other than your own. I agree. And I think that's uh, a great place to kind of leave that. Before I fire off a couple of quick fire questions towards the end, do you have anything else you want to share with our listeners? Um, no, Chris, I, I appreciate you having me on today and, uh, I'm glad that, uh, we had the opportunity to do this and it's good being, uh, neighbors with you. You're right in the, uh, DC, Maryland, uh, Virginia area. So, uh, say hello again, next time you're in roots or the lab, uh, anybody wants to reach out to, to me, uh, I am on Instagram and Facebook, all of the various media channels, but thank you for having me today. Thank you for coming on. So I just want to throw out like three quick final questions. If you had, if you had one thing to make for dinner, what would it be? Like, do you have a, a favorite kind of comfort food or go-to food that you would make for your family? Oh man. Well, it, it may not uh, be what people would expect because uh, it's not like this extraordinary creation, but uh, I would have to say, like, I love uh, red sauce and uh, meat braising in it, um, you know, like a Sunday sauce. Uh, I am part Italian. Uh, my, my nana on my dad's side, uh, they, she, I mean, I, I remember the memories of going back to see her in, in Connorsville, Pennsylvania, and they always, she always had sauce simmering. And the way it made me feel at, whenever I would, smell that and see it and then eat it. I love that. And I don't know that even to this day, I just, I mean, I just love tasting the sauce as it's cooking. I mean, I could eat a lot of bread um, and it's just something comforting. That's, that's probably still my, my go-to meal. Yeah. We do that a lot at our house. My in-laws live with us and my father-in-law's like signature thing is his sauce. He does uh, sausage in it and he puts chunks of carrots in there, which I've never done before, but that's how he always yeah. does it. And he'll make like a giant five gallon batch of sauce and we'll just vacuum seal it and throw it in the freezer. And when we want a quick dinner, we'll just pull out a thing of sauce and go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the scope of what I cook at home is, is pretty wild. I mean, I, I, I cook every single day, every night I make dinner uh, for my family. And, um, but I, you know, I, some things I do might be kind of exotic. Um, I do have, I do have, a, I do a decent amount of sous vide. I do a lot of barbecue. Um, but I also, I mean, like I said, I'm Italian is also in my blood. I'm Italian and German. And I uh, do have an affinity for, for uh, traditional Italian still to this day. Do you have a recommendation for a relatively inexpensive piece of gear that people could pick up to kind of 
upgrade their cooking at home? I mean, I know you have a lot of very fancy, really cool stuff at the lab, but what are what's a thing or two people should have at home? Well, right now, and this 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 is probably going to be really uh, surprising again because it's on the other side of the spectrum uh, with uh, sous vide cooking, which is low and slow. Uh, but one of the things I've been playing around a lot is uh, with is uh, the uh, pressure cookers. I'm gonna have an Instapot, um, and you know, a lot of people are like, "Oh man, I can't believe you use those." It's like, well, I, I'm. I'm, I'm relentless about learning and I always want to try different things. And I've, I've been on this grain cook, uh, kick and I'm just cooking all these different, um, grains and, you know, as somebody, and I'm going to give you an example. I mean, as somebody that would maybe traditionally make a carrot puree and I would make this vibrant, uh, sous vide, uh, carrot puree with a little bit of honey and some carrot juice and, uh, carrot, fresh carrots, now I'm like, well, what if I make it into pressure cooker? And I kind of, and I, and I concentrate and I really just, um, get a more caramelized carrot puree. So I don't know. I, I really am just fascinated with, uh, with learning and I suspect that that'll never go away. I love the pressure cooker. I don't have an instant pot, but just like a Cuisinart electric pressure cooker. I got it maybe 10 years ago, because ideas and food, they were doing all these things. And it was like caramelized milk solids in the pressure cooker and just like really cool things. And then I kind of shelved it for a while. And then my wife and I dug it out. And now we use it probably once or twice a week. Yeah, I mean, trust me, I could start rattling off uh, all kinds of different equipment. But I'd say that's probably uh, for for the listeners. I mean, that's probably the one that probably most people know of. Um, we, we have been using, um, in our commercial kitchen, my, my favorite tool that I'm using right now definitely is our Irinox uh, Blast Chiller. Uh, we have the Multifresh, which uh, gives us the ability, uh, and this, this is a way that we're able to be more efficient at work, where we can blast roast a, a whole strip loin and then put it into, and it, it gets nice and caramelized, but then we put it in our Multifresh we'll say we want it to cook at medium rare and then it'll cook overnight until it in very little shrinkage, perfect medium rare. When you come in in the morning that not only did it cook it perfectly, but then it chilled it down. And then all we have to do is slice it and assemble some sandwiches for the wineries. And it's great, but it's given us the ability to manage almost an extra shift. So when there's people not there at night, there's still activity happening um, in our kitchen at the lab. So that efficiency has has really uh, got, come back to us, not just with quality, but being able to do more with our schedule. I would love to have some of that in my house. It's way beyond what I need right now, but like they do have a home version. I will say there's one other really cool one that's actually going to be hitting the market soon. Another uh, piece of equipment, uh, our dry ager uh, aging cabinets, and this is a German company that is making its debut in the United States this year. Um, we actually have a few of those coming as well. We'll be putting um, in Atlanta uh, and up here in Leesburg. You're welcome to come over and test it out. But uh, they basically give you like the quality of like um, a steakhouse that has an aging room right in your own home. They're beautiful and there's very little shrinkage, which means you're gonna get more yield on the meat, but it's a uh, dry ager. We're really excited about those this year. Wow. I need to build a R&D kitchen on my property at home, I think. It gets very expensive, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, and by the way, spending time with me, my enthusiasm for equipment, it is contagious and it, 
an afternoon with me can get pretty expensive because you'll come back with uh, a whole list of things that you want to you want to get. I've been told no new gear at my house until I get rid of something, but I still keep adding things to the mix. I've got my eye on a pizza oven. I've really gotten into pizza and I use my baking steel in my oven at home, but I'm really looking at doing something else. So that might be my next piece of gear that I get. You know, but, and and I know that's a different episode, but I mean, even just like with pizzas, I mean, as, as a certified master chef and somebody that has done like all this classical cooking and Boku store, I mean, I really just get excited even just about pizza or tacos. And I mean, I, I feel like that that doesn't uh, dilute any of the classical pate and all that stuff. It's just that there's room for all of it. And it's all just so interesting and uh, it's craveable. I think that's why people get excited about uh, about that food. You know, I've said to you, your brisket is my favorite brisket I've ever had. I think brisket is really tough to nail. I think you can BS a pork shoulder. You know, I, I can do a pretty good pork shoulder on my griller in my oven, but really getting the brisket down and I will go out of my way to drive to Roots to get brisket because I can't get, I can't get brisket like that around here. And that's the stuff that I go back to is I love pizza and barbecue and tacos and things like that, the things that I want to eat all the time. And right. to, to be able to apply uh, some really great technique to those things, that's what I love seeing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, to me, it's like anything that goes on the menu, we always say it's like, it's gotta be craveable and delicious. You know, when you've done that, um, then you've got something special. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm going to put together some really comprehensive show notes. We didn't get into it, but you are going to be doing the international sous vide association online thing. I had Jason and Mike on the show, so I'm going to include that in the show notes too. So people can come check that out. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. It'll be our first year, so can't wait. Thank you so much, Chris. I enjoyed talking with you today. Awesome. Thanks a lot. And to all our listeners, this has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.